Name. Amen. You guys, grab a seat, would you? Well, it's been a great journey in the book of Hebrews. Really been enjoying it. Uh, it's definitely been challenging me. Uh, each week to really have to try to dig into these passages. Some of these are, they're hard to understand at first, but I'm so thankful to get to be part of a church that loves uh, God's word, that, that loves to dig into God's word and understand. It's such a joy to be able to prepare knowing that there will be people excited to, uh, to dig in and understand this. I have a question, what... Uh, what is the single greatest threat to, to human beings? The single greatest threat to humankind, what is it? I'm not actually asking an answer. Someone's like, COVID, or someone's like, TikTok, which I might agree with that, it might be. What's the single greatest threat? You know, a lot of times we would think, well, it's, it's gotta be death, you know? Death is the greatest enemy. Or, or perhaps we'd think, well, sin. You know, sin is the greatest enemy um, or perhaps the, the devil, perhaps the enemy, you know, Satan himself is the greatest enemy of humanity, the greatest thing that we need to watch for, the greatest thing we need to be careful of. And I would disagree with all those because all those things have actually been defeated, right? Death, defeated. Sin, paid for. The enemy, defeated. So what is the greatest threat? What's the greatest threat for humanity? What's the greatest threat for you and I? Let me give you an example, see if you can figure this out. So, uh, have you ever been caught up in a wave? Uh, I know Mike Moore, our, sur our surfing, uh, you're, you're like the surfer guy in our church. Like, you know, uh, you know caught up in a wave or something. I, I remember one time, I was in, um, I was in uh, Kauai, and I was, I was much smaller at the time. I think I was like in high school, kind of scrawny kid, and, and I was walking along the beach, and I, um, and I saw these big, burly guys, and they were like all out in the waves, and they were like trying to, it was like a, a, a bro contest to see if they could stand when the wave hit them and not fall over. And I was like, oh, that looks cool. I want to do that. So, so me, this scrawny kid, you know, I'm like, I'm going to try it. So I kind of weighed out. I'm like, how hard could it be? You know? <laughs> and I like get not even like five feet from these guys. The wave comes and I'm just like, <laughs> just like flipping upside down all over the place like a baby in a washing machine, which is a terrible analogy. But that's what I felt like. Um, you know, and, and the craziest thing when you're, when you're caught up in waves, you don't always know which way is up. You don't always know which way to swim. It can be really scary. Now, let's just say I'm caught up in, in a wave of some sort, and, and I don't know, actually know which way to swim, and I choose to swim the wrong direction. What was responsible for killing me? Was it the water? Was it the wave? Was it the lack of oxygen? Or was it the choice to swim the wrong direction? See, the greatest enemy in that place is not necessarily the water. It's not necessarily the lack of oxygen. It's my choice to swim the wrong direction. So what is the greatest threat to humanity? What is the greatest enemy? I'm going to say, and I think our passage is going to agree with me today, or uh, I should say I'm agreeing with the passage, that unbelief is the greatest enemy. Unbelief. And by belief, I don't just simply mean agreeing that God exists, Right? By unbelief, I mean choosing not to receive God's gift of salvation. Unbelief does not just mean, <clears throat> I don't think God exists or I don't think Jesus is real. No, unbelief is saying, I refuse his salvation. But this unbelief, it's not just something that unbelievers need to think about. It's something we all need to think about. 
It's something that threatens us all. It's something that we should often think about, be worried about, and consider quite often. Unbelief is our greatest enemy, and it ought to be our greatest concern. This is the thing that the author today in our passage is going to get us to think about. It's the thing that he wants us to, to take seriously. And it's kind of perfect timing, actually. Now, I didn't think about it until just now. But being New Year's, we're sort of taking an account, right? We're thinking about what we need to think about. We're taking time to ask questions like, what do I need to focus on this year? Well, let's let the author of Hebrews tell us what we need to focus on this year. And it is this enemy that, that faces us all, that is unbelief. We ought to fear it. We ought to fear it. It is dangerous. Now, before we dive into our passage, I want to explain something, and this might seem um, a little theological, but I, I swear it's important. There is a universality, there is a continuity of every saint that's ever been saved from Abraham and even before Abraham all the way to us right now. You know, sometimes we think there's this big divide between us and those who lived in the Old Testament. Sometimes we think people in the Old Testament were saved by works and we're saved by grace. You ever think that? Is that true? It's not true. Every believer, listen to me, every believer that has ever lived is saved by grace through what? Faith. It's always been faith. It's always been belief. It's always been faith that we're saved by. Now, just because someone like Moses gave the old covenant doesn't mean that that old covenant could save them. It was faith in God's grace that saved them. The covenant was a way for them to show faithfulness. It was a way for them to show that they had faith. Now, Romans teaches us this. It's why it says Abraham is our father. Why is Abraham our father? Because he was the first to have faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is a trusting response to whatever level of revelation God has given at the time. How much revelation did Abraham have? Not much. Not much. But he responded in faith to what God told him, to the amount of knowledge that God gave him. There is such a thing as progressive revelation, meaning that God has been opening the curtain wider and wider and wider throughout history on what he is doing and, and how he's working. And every generation of human that has ever lived is responsible for having faith according to the knowledge that God has given us. That means that you guys holding this thing in your hand, you have a lot of revelation in your hand. Do you realize that? You have a lot of revelation. You have everything that God revealed through um, the Exodus and through Moses and through Sinai, the law. You have everything God has revealed through the prophets. You have everything God has revealed through Jesus, God's final word. You have everything God has revealed through the apostles and their teachings about Jesus. You have a lot of revelation. And we are saved by having a faith response to that revelation. Now, Sam, why am I bringing this up? Why does it matter? Here's the thing. We have a lot more in common with the people that we read about in the Old Testament than we think. Oftentimes we think, well, that was Old Testament. I'm in the New Testament, okay. But here's the thing. They had to believe just like we do. They were saved by faith just like we are. They were saved by faith in future grace. They were saved by faith in God, knowing that Jesus would come and be the sacrifice for all the saints in the Old Testament. We are saved by looking back and seeing Jesus and believing in Jesus as our sacrifice here in the New Testament. We're all saved by faith. It all matters. And why this matters is because in our passage today, the author is going to draw our attention to some of our old um, brothers and sisters that walked so long before us. 
that had to make a faith decision. Would they trust God or would they walk in, here's the word, unbelief? He's going to remind us. Now, the, the author of Hebrews has a concerned heart for the flock that he's writing to. Okay, the letter of Hebrews is a, a letter. It's a pastoral letter, and it's a pastoral letter to Jewish, ethnically Jewish Christians who were living um, a few years before the temple was destroyed, probably around 67 A.D., so about 30 years after Jesus rose, there was Christians. Christianity had spread pretty far at that time. And, and there were churches all over the place. And the author of Hebrews, who was clearly an apostolic witness, he is writing to these believers, and he's concerned for this unbelief. The same unbelief that caused the Israelites to stay out of the rest, out of the promised land, he's concerned that that same unbelief might find its way into these Christians. And so the burden of the passage is that they see the tendency of humans to not take God at his word. Regardless of how much God has given us of his word, we are responsible to respond in faith to that level of revelation. So this is kind of what's going to happen in our passage. He's going to draw our attention back to um, Exodus to see the unbelief that consumed the Israelites, the thing that kept them out of the promised land. And he's going to say, watch out for this. Watch out for this. It could consume you. It's kind of what we're going to look at today. If you remember these particular um, Christians that the, the book of Hebrews is written to, they were wrestling with this temptation to drift away from Jesus as their primary salvation and to drift back into what? Judaism. They were, they, were, they were tempted to go back to serving Yahweh without Yahweh's ultimate gift of salvation, Jesus. Why? Because they were experiencing persecution. They were experiencing tribulation. It wasn't easy to follow Jesus then. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. I thought, maybe we can just divorce ourselves from Christ and still be faithful to God. And the point of this, this book, the book of Hebrews, is the author saying, you can't do it. Don't do it. Jesus is the whole deal. He's the whole deal. That's what they're trying to get at. Now, before we dive into our text, we need to recognize context, right? Context means this is one big thought. We're not just chopping this up into little thoughts. This isn't like the book of Proverbs where every verse is a different thought. There's something called context here and we need to be reminded what the context is. The, the beginning of our text today really started two weeks ago when John taught um, in verse one of chapter three. That was the beginning of the big thought there. And what was the big thought? Let me just remind you, kind of review really quick. The big thought was that if Israel was to be faithful to Moses who was a servant in God's house, follow me, here's the logic, how much more should we be faithful to Jesus, who is the owner of the house and the constructor of the house? So Moses is a servant, and he brought revelation. Jesus is the son, and he brought revelation. So just like the children of Israel, we are responsible to respond in faith to God's voice, to God's witness. In the Old Testament, it was Moses. In the New Testament, it's the greater Moses, Jesus. So the imperative of two weeks ago, the passage in verse 1 of chapter 3, is to look at Jesus, the apostle, the sent one, Jesus, the one who, who has come to be the ultimate revelation of God and the ultimate salvation of God. And then he's going to transition now here in verse 7 to a warning, okay? And there's a lot of warning in Hebrews. And warnings are important, okay? They're important, and so we need to take heed. Now, if you're an outline person, 
There's two big parts or two big ideas, <coughs> excuse me, in our passage. The first is, if you want to write it down, the first is we're going to see the avenue of unbelief. We're going to talk about unbelief today, okay? The first we're going to see is the avenue of unbelief, and then secondly, we're going to see the antidote for unbelief, okay? So the avenue of unbelief, part one, the antidote, the antidote for unbelief. The author is going to show us how toxic, how terrible, how um, deadly unbelief is, what unbelief is. And then he's going to give us how we're going to deal with it, how we can deal with it, how we can overcome unbelief and continue to be faithful to God. That's kind of the flow of the passage. So even though Robert read it for us, let me just read the first little chunk for us again. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, let's just stop right there. The first thing I want you to see is in the very first line of verse 7, it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 95. But who wrote Psalm 95? Trick question. Was it David? Well, David wrote it, but who does he say wrote it ultimately here? The Holy Spirit wrote it. So right away, the author is reminding us, hey, I'm going to quote scripture. I'm going to quote the Old Testament, Psalm 95. But that scripture is ultimately written by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's verses like this that give us confidence that everything in the Bible was ultimately revealed by the Holy Spirit through the biblical authors. So yes, David wrote it down, and yes, it had a very David-like um, feel, but the Holy Spirit was the one that wrote it down. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to reach back to the Old Testament, like he does so often, and he's going to pull this Psalm 95, and he's going to redeploy it in a very contextual way to his audience. So what is Psalm 95 is a question we need to ask before, before we read it. Psalm 95 is David, at least the second half, David warning his people, because David was a shepherd of Israel, he was a type of Christ, warning his people about unbelief. He's saying, watch out for this well-worn path of unbelief. And then David, in Psalm 95, reminds his audience of the, one of the ultimate pictures of unbelief, which is the Israelites in the wilderness. So just like David is warning his people, the Hebrew author here is warning his people, and now we're warning ourselves with this passage. We're being warned by the Holy Spirit to watch out for unbelief. So here's what he says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this is quoting Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now that's all quoting Psalm 95. So depending on your Bibles, mine puts it in italics so that I'm able to know that this is quoting Old Testament. Now let's break this down a little bit. First of all, I want you to notice the two words, rebellion and testing. Rebellion and testing. The author's trying to draw our attention to a time in Israel's history where there was great rebellion and great testing. But here's the thing. Those words are not just verbs. They're not just something that, ha that, that, that uh, happened. It's a particular moment that the author's trying to draw attention to. If you were, and you don't need to, but if you were to go back to Psalm 95 and read it, it would read like this. Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah on the day of Massa. Those are actual things that happen. Now, Meribah just means rebellion, and Massa just means testing. 
The point is, is that the author is trying to draw our attention back to a particular event that happened in the book of Exodus, and we know exactly where it is. It's Exodus chapter 17. This is what we're supposed to be aware of. We're supposed to be aware of what happened in the narrative of Exodus chapter 17. So why don't you flip there just really quick with me to Exodus chapter 17, and I want you to see what's going on here. One of the reasons I was so excited to teach Hebrews is it was gonna, it's going to get us in the Old Testament a lot. And I don't know about you, a lot of us, you know, we don't read the Old Testament as much. Maybe we aren't as familiar with the Old Testament. We need to know our Old Testament to be able to understand Hebrews. So Exodus 17, and let's just start in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. (laughs) You could ask more politely, you know. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test who? Why do you test who? The Lord. They're testing the Lord. All caps, Yahweh, the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Oh, what a stupid thing to say. We liked it better in Egypt, right? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. That's probably how he felt right there. And the, Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile <coughs> and go, behold, I will stand before you on their rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock <coughs> and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. So he tells Moses to go and strike the rock. This is a famous scene, right? With the staff. <coughs> and Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel He called the name of the place Massa, which means, what is it? Good. And Meribah, which means rebellion, okay, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here's what I want you to see. Hebrews, the author here, he's trying to signal your attention back to this scene, this moment, not just the rebellion of, of, of Israel in general, but this particular scene in Exodus chapter 17, where the Israelites are grumbling again about the lack of water. So God tells Moses to strike the rock. Now, what is it about this particular scene? Here's what I think it is. This moment is a watershed moment for the unbelief that has been stacking and growing within this generation of the Israelites. This is the moment, I believe, where their unbelief can no longer be satiated by miraculous works. Where there's, listen, there's nothing God can do now that's going to stop them from not trusting him and ultimately rebelling from him. Because, listen, in our text, what did it say? It said, today if you hear his voice, verse 7, back to to, uh, Hebrews now. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in other words, as the Israelites did in Exodus 17 on the day of testing, testing the Lord in the wilderness. And then it says, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. What does that mean? It means this generation of Israelites, the ones that were brought out of Exodus, saw God work miraculously for 40 years and they still 
wouldn't trust him. Isn't that crazy? What kind of stuff did they see God do? Well, here's a few. They saw God rain plagues down on, Exodus, on, his, on Egypt. Right? They saw God part the Red Sea. What do you think? Is that enough? I got more. They saw God lead them in the daytime with a pillar of <clears throat> cloud. And by night with a pillar of fire. They saw bitter water turn to sweet. They saw manna. What is it? I don't know. That's what manna is called. What is it? Manna rain down from heaven. Quail come and provide. They saw God's literal presence quaking on Mount Sinai. Delivering divine tablets to Moses with his expressed will and commandments on those tablets. They saw Aaron's staff bud and come to life. They saw a bronze serpent save them on a pole. They saw the ground swallow up the rebellion of Korah. And they saw themselves prevail in battle against Amalek when Moses' hands were held high. Do you think that's enough evidence to trust the Lord? Do you think? It wasn't for these guys. It wasn't enough. And so this moment where they're now grumbling, even after they've seen so many things happen, they're now grumbling about this lack of water. It teaches us something. It teaches us this. Listen, that unbelief, which is what we're talking about this morning, unbelief at its core is not a failure to be convinced of God's power. It is a failure to, it, is a, it is a choice to refuse God's nature. Let me say that again because I fumbled that. Unbelief at its core is not a failure to be convinced of God's power or God's existence. Unbelief is a refusal to trust and cherish God's nature. What was the question that they asked in Exodus 17? It wasn't, is God powerful? They knew he was powerful. It wasn't, does God exist? They knew he exists. What was the question? Is God good? Does he even care? Does he care? It was the same question the disciples asked in the boat, remember? Jesus is sleeping, and there's a storm. Sea of Galilee is just crazy. And what do they do? They go, does he even care? Unbelief's issue is not with God's existence. It's not with God's power. It's with God as a person. And that's why unbelief is so dangerous. And, and I need to say this, by the way, in case you're, you're wondering. I, I, don't, I do not mean doubt when I say unbelief. Doubt's a good thing. Doubt means you're interested in the truth. Doubt means you're not an idiot. Doubt can be convinced. Doubt wants to know what's really going on. Unbelief is a willful choice to see the truth and say, I do not want it. The spirit of unbelief is what the author is warning here, not doubt, not asking good questions, not saying, how do we know Jesus rose from the grave? Not saying, how do we know this is God's divine revelation? Not saying, how do we know Jesus died on the cross? Those are great questions. Please ask those questions. Unbelief says, I'm going to put my fingers in my ears because I do not want to trust God. That's unbelief. That's what we're warning, being warned against here. And listen to me, there comes a point in unbelief's growth, where miracles and evidence and gifts will no longer do anything but harden you. Think about that for a second. There comes a point where you are so consumed by unbelief that it does not matter how much God gives you, it doesn't matter how much God puts in front of you, or how much power God reveals to you, you will not believe. 
That's why Jesus, when he was in his hometown, The Chosen, you guys watching that season three, episode three, they, they depicted this. It's really good. Go watch it. It's free on YouTube. You got no excuse. Okay. Um, I don't usually plug shows, but that's a good one. Okay. So far, they haven't gone off the rails too far yet. Um, I'm like waiting for like, please don't be heretical. Um, but the, the episode is about Jesus going into his hometown. And what does it say in the Bible? It says he, he did no miraculous work there other than a few things. Why? Is that because Jesus' hands were bound by their lack of belief like Santa and his sleigh? Oh, I can't fly my sleigh tonight because no one believes in me. Oh, no. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus didn't do miracles in Nazareth, not because they didn't, the believe-a-meter wasn't hitting the top enough. Jesus didn't do miracles in Nazareth because it wouldn't have mattered. It would have only served to harden their heart even more because they weren't interested in following Jesus. They were interested in getting something from Jesus. We want to see the freak show. That's what unbelief says. In belief, unbelief is concerned with God's power. It's not concerned with God's person. The problem with unbelief is it doesn't say, I don't know if God's powerful. It says, I don't know if I like God. Remember book of Jonah? That was Jonah's problem, right? His problem wasn't that he didn't know God was real. His problem wasn't that he didn't know God, um, you know, had power. His problem was that he didn't like God. That was Jonah's issue. He knew it was, God was going to forgive these crazy Ninevites. And he didn't like that. Here's a question. Why do miracles only harden a heart of unbelief? Look at, look at, look at uh, the classic biblical example is Pharaoh. The more God did, the harder his heart got. Right? Why? I, I, here's what I think, and I thought about this a lot, and you can give me feedback later if you want. Here's why I think miracles only harden an unbelieving heart. Because I think it feeds the depraved heart and what it truly wants, which is power, control, prosperity, provision, rather than saving faith, which wants God himself and his salvation. See, I think an unbelieving heart says, I just want to see power. I just want to have control. I just want to have prosperity. I just want to have a better life. The believing heart says, I just want God. I want him. I want his salvation. It's about him. This is the difference, guys, between Thomas and Judas. Thomas had doubt. Thomas said, I don't know. Can I? I'm not so sure. Can I feel? Huh? Okay. Judas had no doubt, only unbelief. You know, Judas saw every miracle Jesus did, as far as we know. And he, he, he waited until Jesus had done every miracle Jesus was going to do to betray him. How many more miracles do you think it would have took for, for Judas to be saved? I don't think any amount of miracles would have changed what Judas was going to do. In fact, it wasn't just miracles. It was the kindness of Christ. You know what Jesus did right before Judas betrayed him? He washed his feet. Here's what's so dangerous, so damning about unbelief. is unbelief, it receives the gifts of God. It receives the power of God. It receives the works of God, yet it rejects the person of God. And saving faith says it's not about the power. It's not about the works. It's about God himself. That's what faith is. Faith is about the Lord, not about the Lord's stuff. And that's where we get it wrong, right? Verse 10. The author is going to continue here. Verse 10 says, therefore, this is God speaking. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. And he's not exaggerating. 
Where do they go astray? They go astray in their heart. This is a heart condition. It's not a behavior modification. It's a heart condition. And here's the key. It says, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So let me give you a, a catchy phrase that comes right out of this that you can remember. You can know God's works and not know God's ways. You can know God's works and not... These guys knew God's works for 40 years, but they never knew his ways. Well, what's the difference, Sam? What's the difference between works and ways? What does it mean to know God's works and what does it mean to know God's ways? Knowing God's works means that you've seen him do things. Knowing God's works means that you've even been a recipient of God's things. He's given you something. He's blessed you in some way. In some way, we've all, and if you're sitting right here right now, you have known God's works because you've heard of the resurrection. You're holding the Bible in your lap. You're seeing the beauty of God's church. You're receiving of God's kindness. It's called oxygen. It's called sunlight. All of those things are God's works. Okay, you've seen God's works. But what's the problem with the Israelites? It wasn't that they hadn't seen God's works. It was what? They hadn't seen God's ways. Well, what is, what is it to know God's ways? Listen to this. This is important. Knowing God's ways means knowing God personally. Not just what he does, but who he is. Knowing God personally, trusting God completely, even when he doesn't do what you want him to do, and loving God firstly. That's what I think it means here when it says they didn't know his ways. They saw him do stuff. They saw him manifest power. They saw him part the Red Sea, but they didn't know God. They didn't trust God. They didn't love God. They just loved his stuff. They just loved his money. They just loved his power. They just loved what he could give them. And so that's the spirit of unbelief. So I'm trying to help you guys kind of zone in, just kind of narrow in. The text is trying to help us zone in on what is unbelief. It's not doubt. It's not having questions. It's not being skeptical. Unbelief is loving God for what he does and not for who he is. Unbelief says, I'm fine with God giving me stuff, but I will not trust him. I will not bow to him. Refuse. And let me just put a fine point on this. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you have saving faith. Just because you're benefiting from the presence of God, just because you're seeing the work of God, and maybe you're even impressed by God, doesn't mean you've yet trusted God. There is a difference. Faith means trust. It means I've, I've put all my trust in him. Not just, yeah, I think God's cool. God does cool things. I want to be around God. No, it's like, I trust him. I trust him. That's why God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him, you can be impressed by God and not trust God. Listen, you can love the things of God and like the people of God and not be trusting in the person of God. And I think there's a lot of people in Western evangelicalism that are right there. Church is cool. Bible seems kind of cool. God sounds pretty cool. But they don't actually trust in God. They haven't actually put any faith in him. You can, love, you can love God's stuff and not love God. Now, here's a question you should be asking, and this is a very, uh, if, you're, if you're asking this question, that's probably a good sign that you're not an unbeliever. Um, how do I know if I'm in danger of being hardened by unbelief? How do I know if this unbelief thing is taken over? Well, our text gives us three things. I'll just lay them out really quick. Our text gives us three things to think about. First of all, if you're um, in danger of being hardened by unbelief, you're going to say something like this. Your faith in God depends on if God passes your test that you made for him. That's the spirit of unbelief. That's what the Israelites did for him. Who's testing whom? They're testing God. Now, listen, it's not wrong to test God according to the things that God says to test him on. 
It's not wrong to test God on the things that God has said is true about him. Put him to the test according to what he has said. Here's what's wrong, though. It's wrong to, to, uh, to test God and make sure he is who you think he should be. That's where you go sideways. Testing here in this text doesn't mean seeing if he is who he says he is. Testing here in this text means seeing if he will be who you have decided he should be. You know how many times I hear people say things like that? I would believe in God if he, whatever. I'll never believe in a God that would allow whatever. I can't trust a God that does this. I can't trust a God that did that. Okay, then don't. But he's not beholden to your metrics of whether or not you should trust him, is he? Because he's the creator and you're the creation. What the Israelites here are doing is they're saying, we will decide if God is good. We will decide based on our own metrics. And God says, no, it doesn't work like that. I'm God, you're not. The spirit of unbelief holds God to our own standards, our own expectations. It always cracks me up when people say things like that too, and I get it. How could God do this? I'll never trust a God that could do that. And it's like, why do you, why do you think that's wrong? Where'd you get your morality? Who gave that to you? Who was the one that told you right and wrong? Uh, God. So, so wait a minute. <laughs> you're, you're, you're more holy than God? You know better what's right and wrong than God, even though he's the one that created you to know what right and wrong is in the first place? No, it doesn't work like that. Here's another one. Here's another way you can, you can know if you're, you're in danger of being hardened. Your heart increasingly dislikes and tunes out God's word. You ever catch yourself in seasons like that? You're kind of like, I don't want to hear God's word. I don't want to hear it preached. I don't want to hear it read. Because I, I, I just don't like what I hear. And I don't really like what I know God's going to ask me to do. So I'm just going to stop reading it. I'm not saying church attendance is the end-all, be-all, okay? But I do notice oftentimes when people start to let unbelief consume them, they don't want to be at church. They don't want to read their Bibles. They don't want to hear sermons because they don't like what they're hearing. The heart of a believer, the heart of one that's heart of faith is saying, God, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. Even if I don't like it, I want to hear from you. It's important. There's a deep connection between hearing and hardening. There's a deep connection. And then here's the third one. This is important. A third way you can know if you're, if you're, you're being um, hardened by unbelief is that you make your house in the wilderness. Here's what I mean by that. The Israelites were in this really unique situation where they knew too much to go back to Egypt, but they trusted God too little to go into the rest. And that left them in this funny place. And I think there's a lot of people in our culture that, that they're too introduced to truth to go full on Egypt. You know what I mean? They're not down in the bars. They're not stumbling out of the bar, you know, at 2 a.m. They're not, they're not going crazy on sin. They're, they're pretty moral because they know, man, Egypt sucked. I don't want to go back there. But they're not actually trusting God. They're not actually saved in faith. They're just sort of wandering in this wilderness place that refuses to go into rest. And they're just like, I'm stuck here. My, my dad, who, who passed away a couple years ago, who is now with the Lord because he believed in Christ, but he lived most of his adult life in the wilderness. Good man, didn't want to live in Egypt, knew better, faithful to his wife, good father, moral man, yet he would refuse to trust God and receive his peace. I don't know what that was, but it was from the Lord. No. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> don't stone me. <laughs> don't stone me. You can, you, can, you can choose to live in this place. The Israelites, they still received God's gift of redemption, but yet they never actually went into rest. 
Okay? And when I say rest, and when this, when this thing talks about rest, and, and Pastor, Pastor Ryan's going to talk about this more next week, but when we talk about rest, it's not just talking about heaven. We're talking about the rest that comes in the gospel. We're talking about the rest that comes in the finished work of the cross and saying, I'm going to live in that. I'm not going to wander in the wilderness. I'm going to live in the rest that comes in the finished work of Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews is just pleading with us to do right now is to say, I'm going to live in the rest that Christ has achieved because he crossed the Jordan, because he was the greater Moses, because he is the greater Israel, because he's been victorious, because he took the promised land. I'm going to live in his rest by faith. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But for some of us, we choose to just sort of wander. Watch out for wandering. Verse 11, he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's kind of where I'm getting, getting that idea there. Now, skip down to verse 16. He kind of completes his thought. I'm just gonna read it. For, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt and led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, those whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of, note the word, unbelief. So what's the point of our passage? The point of our passage is watch out for this unbelief. It will keep you from the rest of God. It will keep you wandering. It will keep you in death. Watch out for it. Now, we've talked about the avenue of unbelief. Now let's get to the, the good news here. Let's get to the, the antidote of unbelief. How do we deal with this thing? How do we deal with this unbelief that oftentimes can consume us? That we find in verse 12. And he's gonna give us four antidotes. If you wanna write them down, four antidotes. I'll give them to you one at a time as we go. Four antidotes of unbelief. The first one is in verse 12. Look closely. It says, take care. Everybody say, Take care. Take care. Take care, brothers. Here's the imperative. He's given us the warning. Now, here's the imperative. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the first imperative is to take care. This is the Greek word blepete, kind of a fun word to say, blepete. It can be translated to see, to watch out, to think about, or to understand. What he's saying is, is he's saying, Christians or anyone who's listening, tune in to this thing that is your faith. Don't put it on autopilot. How many times a day do you stop and think about the nature and the well-being and the health and the maturity and the stature of your faith in God? How many times do you think about that? He's saying, take care, look at it. Focus on it. Make a big deal about it. You know, it's funny. The things that really matter to us, the things that we know have massive consequences, we look at them all the time, don't we? Like your bank account. I don't know about you guys. We live paycheck to paycheck. I'm looking at our bank account every day, every two days. Any checks bouncing? You know, is, is, everything, is there any withdrawals that are coming out that I don't know about? What's that little $4 fee right there? What's that? What's going on? I'm always checking, right? Why am I checking? Because it's important. Because there's consequences if I don't check. My bank account, regularly, right? What the author here is calling us to is he's saying, treat your faith that way. Treat your faith, look at it, examine it, pay attention to it. Be careful to, to look at it every day. Don't just assume it's there. Examine it. The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. 
I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about looking at your salvation. I'm talking about looking at your faith. I'm talking about working on your faith. Asking questions like, am I spiritually healthy? You know, I've said this before, but the worst thing that happens in your bank account is when the little 50 cent charges come out. Because you're like, man, well, I don't want to worry about that. But what happens when 150 cent charges come out? Right? What happens when 250 cent charges come out? What, what, what's the nature of your faith? Is it growing? Is it healthy? Are you investing in your faith, in your trust in God? Are you building your trust with God? Are you practicing, choosing to trust God? Or are you just sort of letting it on autopilot? And let me tell you, your faith will not grow on its own. You are saved by grace. You are sanctified with much work. You'll hear me say that all the time. You got to invest in your faith. You got to think about your faith. It's important. It's the most important thing you can think about. And so the call of the biblical author here is to take attention, to pay attention, to take care, blepite. I'm not talking about, again, I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about working on your salvation. There's a difference, okay? So antidote number one, write it down. Antidote number one is careful and constant inquiry. Careful and constant inquiry. How carefully do you examine your faith? What exactly are we taking care against? Look at verse 12 again. It says specifically, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So take care against unbelief, leading you away from the living God. Now this tells us some things. First of all, it tells us that unbelief is evil and it is sin, which is how we know it's not just talking about doubt. It's talking about something else. It's talking about a willing and conscious decision to not obey God. Be careful of that. Its ultimate goal is to what? Remove you from God. This is what unbelief does. Okay, let me say something really important. Satan's ultimate goal with you is not to get you to sin. Satan's goal with you is to get you to sin so that you stop believing God. You see that? He knows that sin works the muscle of unbelief and that if he can get you to sin enough, he can get you to stop believing God enough and he can actually create a wedge between you and your father. Sin is this terrible, it does this terrible thing. It throws us into this thing called the shame cycle. We sin, we feel bad, rightly so. We know we've just done something that offends God's very nature. We know that a holy and righteous God isn't okay with this sin. So what we do is instead of look at God and see his grace, we look down away from God. We take our eyes off him. It creates shame. And what does shame create? Shame creates sadness. Shame creates guilt. Shame creates unhappiness, which leads to what? More sin, which leads to more shame, which leads to more sin. That's why sin is so detrimental. Jesus has paid the debt for our sins. But when we sin, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. We come to him. How do we break the shame cycle? Listen, believe the gospel. Yes, I sinned. I have this grace of confession and repentance. I have been given a mechanism to be able to deal with this sin. And the way I deal with it is by not looking at the ground. It's by looking at my heavenly Father. It's by putting words to and saying, Lord, I did this. I need your grace. And it breaks you out of the shame cycle. You believe the gospel and say, yes, I did this, but this is not who I am. I am a child of God, clothed in righteousness. That's who I am. It pulls you out of that shame cycle. Satan wants you to be disconnected from God. And he knows if he can get you to sin enough, you'll go hide in the bushes like Adam. Because that's what we do. But what does God do? He calls us out of the bushes. And he clothes us. 
like he did with Adam and Eve. He's kind. The issue with sin is not sin. It's choosing not to believe the gospel. Every time you sin, it's because you've chosen not to believe the gospel. And the way that you stop sinning is you choose to believe the gospel. Sin is downstream from the bigger problem. Unbelief is the true problem. I need you to see that your biggest problem is not sin. It's unbelief. If you were believing the gospel, you would not sin in that way. If you saw Jesus as the superior reality. It's so important. So, number one, antidote, careful and constant inquiry. Here we get. Number two, in verse 13, it says, but exhort one another every day. Oh, guys, I just can't say that powerfully enough. But exhort one another every day. Say that with me. But exhort one another every day. Look around. That's one another. That's one another. The second antidote, write it down. The second antidote to unbelief is gospel community. It's why we do church. It's why we gather here, even on New Year's Day, a holiday. It's why we gather here because we are all in need of exhortation from one another. Well, Sam, what does exhort mean? I'll tell you. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo. Does that sound familiar to any of you guys? Okay. The paraclete is the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? It means the one who comes alongside and encourages. So we have this call as the church, as the body, to come alongside, recognizing that all of us are susceptible to unbelief, to come alongside and to encourage and to instruct each other. We're called to merge into each other's lives graciously and kindly and to preach the gospel to each other so that we are not hardened by unbelief. You need the body. You need the body. And you need to be the body. I can't say this enough. Our faith was not designed to thrive alone. You were not designed to sit in your house and listen to podcasts by yourself. You were designed to be with the body. Having your faith stoked and encouraged and stoking others' faith and encouraging others and exhorting others. Parakaleo, to come alongside and encourage. That's what the church is and you need it. You need it when? You need it today. What does it say? It says today. It's called today. Anytime it's called today, as long as it is today, you are called to exhort one another. Every minute of every day, now is the time to press into the body. What we need is gospel practitioners. We need a church full of people that can say, I am going to, I am going to actually practice speaking the gospel into the unbelieving areas of the people that I'm interacting with every day. Because that's what they need and that's what I need. You need it and you need to give it out. That's what church exists for. Second antidote was gospel community. Now, the third one we find in verse 14. And I swear I'm wrapping up here. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original, note these words, original confidence firm to the end. Okay? So he's saying here, number three, antidote number three for how to uh, guard against unbelief is gospel dependency gospel dependent. Let me just give it to you real simple here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the kind of faith that brought you to Christ is the kind of faith that will keep you with Christ. Let me say that again. The kind of faith that brought you to Christ is the kind of faith that will keep you with Christ. 
What that means is, is that the spirit in which and the thankfulness in which and the receptivity and the repentance and the humility in which that brought you to a place where you said, I need Jesus, he's all I have and he's all that matters, that is what will get you to the end. The problem is, is we let go of that contrition, we let go of that humility, we let go of that brokenness, and we start to feel like God's pretty lucky to have us on his team, don't we? We let go of the poor of spirit. We let go of the spiritually bankrupt. We let go of the humility that says, I'm a sinner and I need grace and God is kind and he's made salvation for me. And we go, man, I do a lot for the Lord. I'm so spiritual now. Of course, we never say that because we'd sound stupid, but we think it, don't we? What he's saying here is he's saying, you want to get to the end? You want to you antidote against disbelief? Stay in that broken, contrite, needy, poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt place where I have nothing but God's grace. You know, one of the most clear moments you'll ever find in your life is when you totally blow it as a Christian and you have to put your money where your mouth is and go, I have to believe the gospel now again. Even though I thought I was never going to do this thing again, here I am doing it again. And you know what's funny? The next step is usually, or the next feeling is usually freedom. One thing Christians are really good at is telling their testimony before they got saved. One thing Christians are really bad at is talking about when they blew it after they got saved. What does that tell us? It tells us that we think the gospel is important for before we get saved, but we don't think the gospel is important for when we've been saved. You need the gospel every minute, every day, because you're going to blow it. And the way that you get to the end is you stay humble, you stay broken, you stay thankful for this great gift of salvation that God has given us. I'll say it one more time, the kind of faith that brought you to Christ is the kind of faith that will keep you with Christ. Hungry, thirsty, humble, poor, needy. So gospel dependency is that, number three. The fourth one we find, we'll close here in verse 15. Fourth antidote, it says, 15, as it is said today, now he's, he's repeating what he's already said in Psalm 95, he's repeating what he said in verse seven. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts. Antidote number four, write it down, is practiced serenity. I love the word serenity. We don't use it very much anymore, but it means to surrender. It means to be surrendered, serenity. We need to practice serenity. That means that we practice staying pliable and constantly choosing to say yes to the Lord, even when it's hard, because that's what builds our faith. You need to practice the muscle of surrender to the Lord. Doing what you know is hard. Doing what you know he's asking you to do. Um, sometimes they go snow camping. And, and, you know, sometimes if you're camping at a body of water, you have to cut a little hole in the, in the ice so that you can get to water. But what happens is over time, you know, even a couple hours, if it's really cold, it starts to freeze up. And you got to go back and you got to break the ice up. That's the reality of our hearts. They only stay soft for a little bit. And they seize up and they get tight in, the, in, the, in this sort of... this. Um, layer begins to grow of, of unbelief if we're not careful. We need to practice doing what God asks us to do. That's why we need to come to the word every day. It's why we need to be challenged every day by the Lord and say, God, I'm going to respond in faith. I'm going to do it even with the little things, even the things no one knows about, even the things that no one else thinks matters. I'm going to say yes to you, Lord, because that builds a softness and a responsiveness to your word. Unlike the Israelites that were building the muscle of unbelief 
Like a stalagmite, just this dripping of unbelief began to create these scales and these layers of hardness where they no longer could listen to God. The believer stays soft. He says, God, I'm going to choose to say yes. I'm going to choose to say yes every day. This is the warning of our passage. Like those in Israel in the time of the wilderness, the time of Sinai, at the time of Moses, we too can be susceptible to this reality of unbelief. We have to fight against it. We don't fight against it with our, our works. We fight against it by believing the gospel, believing in the rest that Christ has taken the promised land and in him it is ours. Amen? That's what we're called to do. It's been said to keep your you know, enemies close or keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. I want to encourage you guys to keep the enemy of unbelief close in your mind. Pay attention to it. Recognize that it is there. Watch for it. And guys, this is so important. Just because you were faithful in one season of your life does not mean you're being faithful now. You have to continually. Look at David. He's the ultimate example of that. How could a man who was the man's after God's own heart, a man who wouldn't even take Saul's life when he was right in front of him, how would that same man commit adultery and send a man to murder? Because our hearts do not naturally stay soft. They need tending. Tend your heart. Tend it. Some of you guys in here have been walking with the Lord for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You have to keep coming back to the grace of God. There's never a time where you need to stop taking care. Sam, you're preaching works. Fine not works of salvation. You can't earn your salvation. It's a gift. It's a free gift of God, but we gotta work. We gotta work to believe this thing. It's hard. It's hard. It takes work to grow our faith. So this new year, remember these four antidotes. Remember careful and constant inquiry. Remember gospel community. Remember gospel dependency. And remember practiced serenity. And your homework for this week is to not go through this week without both exhorting one of your brothers and sisters, encouraging, coming alongside, and building their faith, and also to reach out to the body to have your faith built. This church will grow spiritually if it's ministering to itself. It says in Ephesians 4, the body will grow by building itself up in love. That love is the gospel, that truth of the gospel. I encourage you guys this week to do that. Make a phone call. Meet with somebody. If you're new here, stick around for 10 minutes after service. Don't just run out. Meet somebody new. Get a phone number. Learn a new name. Be the body this week. And ask good questions of your faith. Amen. Would you guys stand?